Welcome to STEMiverse podcast episode 34. In this episode, Peter and Marcus talk with Dr. Jane Hunter. Jane is a former primary and high school teacher. She's currently leading a series of postdoctoral research studies in Australia to build teacher capacity in STEM and STEAM in schools. Her work reinforces the importance of pedagogy and ongoing teacher professional learning through action learning in school-university partnerships. The pedagogical framework featured in her recent book, Technology Integration and High Possibility Classrooms, Building from TPAC, is leading education change and new thinking in schools. Jane also teaches pre-service teachers in the Masters of Teaching Program Secondary in the School of Education at the University of Technology, Sydney. This is STEMiverse podcast episode 34. Welcome to STEMiverse, a podcast produced by Tech Explorations. Our mission is to help educators become awesome at teaching STEM, be it at home or in the classroom. Whether you are a professional or casual teacher teaching in a classroom or a parent or caretaker teaching at home, this podcast brings you the knowledge and experiences of practitioners, academics, entrepreneurs and lifelong learners who are passionate about education and strive every day to help our children prepare for life in a world of radical change and, why not, abundance. This podcast is brought to you by Tech Explorations, a leading provider of educational resources for makers, STEM students and teachers. For a limited time only, go to texplore.com slash STEMiverse and receive Peter's latest ebook, Maker Education Revolution, a book about how making is changing the way that people learn and teach in the 21st century. Marcus, we're back one more. Yes, it's been a long time yeah. since we last chatted. Since yesterday, since, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we, like we have uh, back-to-back stem this episode the last uh, few days, which is awesome. Like it's it's on fire. So that's great. So what are we now? 33, 34? Oh, I've lost count. Yeah, me too. Either one or the other, 33 or 34. We've got another special guest this afternoon. And who is that? So it's Dr. Jane Hunter from UTS, which is my alma mater. Uh, I spent uh, almost 10 years at UTS. Mm-hmm. This is Sydney University of Technology, Sydney. So hi, Jane. Thank you for coming on. Oh, good afternoon. I'm looking forward to this. And your, your alma mater is um, UTS, so that's a... That's a great start. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, I've got a lot of memories from UTS. Uh, most of them good, I must say. Uh, I, I learned a lot there. And uh, uh, I met a lot of very interesting people as well. As did I. Yeah. So I'm very glad to have you on, Jane. Excellent. <laughs> Could you take a few minutes and tell us about you? Just an introduction. Um, you can go as far back as you like, uh, like... I don't know, kindergarten maybe, and tell us some of, of the you know, fundamental influences perhaps in your life that led you to where you are now and what you're doing today. Okay, so I was born in Canberra and I grew up in Canberra, uh, which is always uh, people sort of groan, raise their eyebrows and all the rest of it. Canberra has a, has a pretty awful name, but I actually had a very blessed childhood and had a wonderful had wonderful parents, wonderful family life, and where education was really important. 
And uh, I used to teach, gather all the neighbourhood children on my parents' back veranda. I lived very close to the War Memorial in Canberra, um, quite an old suburb. And uh, yes, I would teach. And there was no, never any question about who was going to be the teacher. What did you teach? I taught all sorts of things. So it might just have been about the weather. It might have been about what um, my neighbourhood friends were interested in, new hobbies. It might have been something to do with sports. So, but I'm talking, you know, starting this from about about age five or six from memory. So I had a pretty comprehensive setup with a rotating book stand and a small blackboard and uh, a few little tables and chairs. So it was, um, yes, so I don't know whether the idea of born to teach or learn to teach or made to teach, I'm not sure about that, but I've, I've always had, uh, <laughs> that's always been a, a rather a, a big um, part of, I guess, my desire to learn, but also wow. to be able to be in a position to support other people to learn. What would you say that the influence of your parents on this kind of behaviour, if I can Uh, use that word, (laughs) so early on, what other kids are probably doing other things at that age? Um, I don't know. Maybe it's a question of being a firstborn child. I'm not sure. um, My my father was a brilliant mathematician. He um, was an engineer and my mother um, was a midwife and she was matron of Sydney Hospital for a while and she delivered a lot of those thalidomide babies. So they used to call her the midwife with the magic hands because she knew how to manoeuvre. So uh, um, science and I guess maths were part of uh, the household, but more it was about a love for learning and education. So I had a fantastic primary school education Um, in high school and then I went on to um, university. I went to ANU, that's my alma mater, Mm -hmm. and uh, I focused on the humanities. So I didn't um, follow in the footsteps of, say, my two younger brothers who are both heavily into the sciences and engineer engineer and architecture, for example. Um, I was uh, really interested in the humanities and had really great teaching, especially in high school, in those subject disciplines. Mm. So I came to it from a background really to my work as an educator in anthropology and English. And I was lucky enough to do an in-schools program for my, I guess you'd probably call it a dip ed or a master of teaching, uh, which was an in-schools program of 40 weeks. So we were assigned to a school that was a very small group Um, We were assigned to a school. We taught every day from nine till three. And then we had our classes in the university um, in the evenings. So you certainly had a real sense of, you know, that was what you wanted to do. But I had a bit of a break between finishing my university studies and then going back to gain that extra qualification so I could teach in schools. But yes, I've always, that was a call. I don't know whether you'd call it a calling or whatever, but I certainly was um, always loved the idea of um, learning myself and then inspiring and, in, and and wanting to ensure that young people have the best opportunities no matter where they live. So you're one of those people that knew what you wanted to do from an early age. I did. Right, yeah. and you always knew what the next step should be. <laughs> Yes, well, you know, in theory, and I, I suppose along the way, I've had um, other interesting jobs, both 
as a research assistant and then I worked at ANU for a while. But I also um, went to London and did some interesting bits and pieces there, but came back and then did this qualification. And then I actually went to teach at Yass High School, which was probably my penultimate year as a classroom teacher. And I say that because it was a small country school. There was opportunity there. I only went there for the day to, as a sort of the first day back, coming back from Europe. Um, it was literally about a week later in, in the February, the end of January, early February. And I took a number of lessons over the day. People kept peering into my classroom, wondering what on earth was going on. This woman who had all these incredibly um, colourful stockings and sort of London outfits that kind of were possibly a bit of a mismatch in a small country town, but nevertheless, the students really liked it. And uh, the principal called me into his office at the end of the day and uh, said, would I like to work there for the rest of the year? So, so that was fantastic. And I did. And uh, I had students going to into Canberra. I picked up on a lot of my contacts there to do drama. They were going to ANU to learn Chinese. I took a large group of girls to the snow who'd never actually been to the snow before, even though they live in a place like Yass, where it does snow from time to time. So it was a, a really great school to be at. And we produced, directed a musical which involved 100 students from year 7 to 12. And that was a really fun adventure. But towards the end of the year, um, a principal friend asked me if I was interested in a new position in Canberra at a brand new um, senior college. And so I took that position up right. and was head teacher. So... Um, much to the dismay and um, of the principal at Yass at the time, but it was something that enabled me to really be in my own subject area and to take that forward, which was English. So hmm. um, I taught in schools all up, uh, moved around a little bit and taught in schools for about 12 years. So and then was asked to give guest lectures in higher ed and then moved to uh, to Sydney and went into Sydney University and, and actually taught in teacher education there for about seven years. And then um, from that worked in the bureaucracy for a similar length of time and then went out to Western Sydney for uh, seven years and, and then uh, was appointed to UTS uh, exactly three years ago. Right. And that brings you to where you are now. Yes. You're doing some very interesting research as well. There's always a bit of research on you. <laughs> Would you like to tell us about what you're working on now at GTS? When I was at Western Sydney, I had the opportunity to do my doctorate. And that was something that I'd actually commenced at Sydney University, but I wasn't, being, I wasn't um, able to complete that particular study because I, was, I, I had a massive brain hemorrhage, oh. which is on the public record. So um, that was a fairly life-changing event. And so I picked up with um, a new study, which, and at the time I, um, I'd been just prior to starting that position out at Western Sydney, I'd been working in the New South Wales Department of Education in the Connected Classrooms program and also with the teaching and learning exchange, but also the digital education revolution that Rudd commitment had just started. So I was very interested in the various jobs 
I was doing in the bureaucracy. And remember, I wasn't really a bureaucrat in this, that sense of the word because I had the background in teacher education. I'd done my master's at Sydney Uni. And so I was a bit of a maverick in that space. But nevertheless, I was able to do some interesting work. And then I was also publishing during that time. But certainly when I took up the position at Western Sydney, I thought it was a great opportunity to be able to look very closely at what extraordinary classroom teachers were doing in the tech space. And as I said to you um, before we started recording, that I'm not a techie. Um, My life's work in education across almost three decades now has been about classroom teaching and learning and pedagogy and how can young people be exposed to the best possible teaching and in doing that, what is it that teachers need to be supported with to be able to do that? So that's really um, my focus and I'm a humanities person working in the STEM space and if you think of, say, the work of people like Professor Richard Teitler, he talks about an approach, say, in STEM as being very much about a pedagogical approach as opposed to the purely discipline-based learning. But HPC, the High Possibility Classrooms framework that came out of that exemplary teacher's um, study of technology integration, has been um, validated in a number of primary and high schools now. And because it's a focus, it's a pedagogical framework for teaching and learning which utilises technology and that's not tech all the time it's tech for some of the time no time sometimes it's been very effective and has resonated with lots of um, school systems principals and teachers so it's great to see fantastic practice and that's what really drew me to looking at exemplary teachers, because I thought if we could learn something about what they do when they are using um, technology and learning, then surely there was something that all teachers could learn from. And that's actually exactly how things have panned out. Hmm. You mentioned high possibility classrooms. What is a high possibility classroom? The high possibility classrooms framework has five conceptions. And those conceptions are theory, creativity, public learning, life preparation and contextual accommodations. And so they were drawn from the data that I collected during my doctoral study and exemplary teachers, that's what they focus on. But more particularly underneath those big five, as I call them, sit 22 pedagogical themes and their student learning processes and teaching strategies. And it operates a bit like the um, New South Wales model of quality teaching, which was developed from work from Newcastle University and, of course, work from productive pedagogies and the work of Fred Newman in the US and then more latterly um, the work that was done in Queensland in that big study that findings that were released in, in in early 2000. So I'm a great believer, I guess, in pedagogy as a driver for good teaching and learning. And that pedagogy needs to be focused around students. And that's not to say that there aren't moments for direct instruction, 
but that certainly it's about the students and the students leading their learning and working on big problems, thinking about big problems, contributing, solving those ideas, critical thinking and, you know, those design-based principles. So the work of high possibility classrooms in that original framework drew in a lot of the, I guess, the current literature and work and learning that was being spoken about, say, for example, by by people like Ken Robinson, by people like Anna Craft, who'd done a lot of work in creativity. So it was very timely when it came out. It was the end of 2013. And then I set about writing a book um, for Routledge. They accepted that proposal. And that is the book, Technology Integration and High Possibility Classrooms, Building from TPAC. And of course, I'm sure you've heard of the TPAC framework, um, which came out of the work of um, Mishra and Kola, and also the work of Lee Shulman. So my teachers in that original study were very big on TPAC, but they actually were doing more than that. And hence the um, building from TPAC, which is what the um, high possibility classrooms framework does. Jane, sorry, uh, actually, I haven't heard of TPAC before. <laughs> Could you give us like a, like a very quick introduction to TPAC? Yes, so uh, the critical reading for that, and you might want to put that in the notes for the show, is um, a paper by um, Mishra and Kohler. So I can certainly give you um, the links to that. But sure. it was it built on Lee Shulman's work of pedagogical knowledge and subject and pedagogical content knowledge. And so the PCK work and the PK, the SMK subject matter knowledge work was very big in the middle 80s. And Punya Mishra and um, Matt Kohler used that to underpin the work that they did because what they were arguing is that teachers not only need to know their subject matter, but they need to know about pedagogy. And in doing that, they also need to know about technology and how that can enhance both the, both the subject matter and the pedagogy in the classroom. So they put that all together to form TPAC, which is technological, pedagogical and content knowledge. And so I used that I used that work and their key paper in 2006. And I was very interested in that because I was working in the New South Wales Department of Education and um, training, as it was called at the time. And that paper came to my notice. And I thought this is exactly what I could see um, as a person who wasn't necessarily a techie, but could see the affordances of technology for teaching and learning provided subject matter and the pedagogical aspects of that were included. And of course, this was all around the time that interactive whiteboards were being introduced in schools and the Connected Classrooms program that I worked on was about fitting a $10,000 suite of equipment to every single public school. That was 2,400 public schools. It was a $186 million state government commitment. And it was about increasing the bandwidth to every single public school so that they could have um, a designated classroom for video conferencing, um, Adobe software, laptop, interactive whiteboard and access to digital resources. So, 
you know, we're talking about a time that's, you know, 12 years ago now, but certainly that work that was done and the fit out that was done across that was a very successful government program in education. So as I understand it, you took learnings from TPAC and on top of it, you built a framework, which is what the High Possibility Classrooms is. And I'm looking at the website here, highpossibilityclassrooms.com. And the five conceptions are theory, creativity, life, preparation, contextual accommodations, and public learning. So could you perhaps describe how that can be applied practically in a classroom? Uh, Imagine that a teacher is listening to this podcast and uh, interested in applying this framework in the classroom. Perhaps take a few minutes to tell us how can they get started or what it, what would it look like in practice? So when um, teachers are thinking about enhancing student learning with technology, they need to be thinking, I would argue, about five things. And they're the conceptions as you refer to them. So, for example, if we're talking about what do we mean by the theory conception in HPC, high possibility classrooms, I'll call it HPC, we're talking about how it constructs the learning and it can actually make the learning more purposeful, but it also can support how teachers plan what they're doing in the classroom. And what I saw in those exemplary teachers that I studied across that two-year period was they were using the tech to enhance the subject matter. For example, in a visual arts classroom, one of the teachers, and I, um, and you can read about these um, in the case studies in the book, um, was Kitty. She taught, taught in a very low SES uh, public high school in Western Sydney. And she was a visual arts teacher, but she um, she used technology in a in a range of creative ways. And she, for example, for a student that wasn't very good at drawing, well, then she would project an image up on the board that a student might be able to trace um, up on the you know the wall of the classroom with a large piece of paper and trace an image of a tree, for example, that would then scaffold that student to then be able to do their um, life drawing that they were doing as part of the you know the subject that they might have been learning about in uh, in visual arts. And so that's what I mean about in, enriching the subject matter. So, for example, you know, in maths, you know, ha, um, I saw extraordinary use of that with math teachers that were took students to the beach, for example, in, in a primary school setting. And they were able to do a whole lot of um, different work around capacity and how much sand, for example, fills a pail. How much sand do we need to build a wall that will keep the sea back, you know, and 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 way and using those sorts of, I guess, um, more uh, and then photographing that, making a short film about that mathematical exercise that took place on the beach. There was a fantastic um, video, and you can have a look in Gina's classroom, where um, the students were busting a whole lot of myths that exist in maths, for example. So they made an animation that actually brought those myths, uh, maths in myths, or myths in maths, should I say, um, to the fore. So 
So in terms of working with the framework, it's about thinking about the subject matter that you're teaching. And of course, that's drawn from your syllabus content, but then thinking about how you can use aspects of technology and the conceptions of HPC across, it's not about doing every conception in every lesson, but certainly across the whole term in a learning sequence, teachers would think about, you know, well, am I giving my students opportunities to make their learning public? If they're making a short animation about, you know, those uh, maths myths, then um, are they given an opportunity to show that to the rest of the class? Are they, for example, able to produce and make something? And that's part of the creativity conception. So it's very much placing the ownership for learning into the student's hands, but that's supported by rigorous planning by the teacher. And I have this saying that my supervisor, Professor Jeff Munns, used to say, planning hard to teach easy. (laughs) And I think that a lot of what we see in schools, the planning that goes into learning isn't always what it should be. And there's a lot of one-off lessons that are busy work and they don't really build conceptual understanding. So I'm a great believer in good planning and good planning is everything in teaching and learning. So HPC supports teachers to do that and to think, well, in a whole term, I'm teaching this unit, for example, on mini beasts. I'm going to give my students opportunities, creativity. I'm going to give them opportunities for public learning and what what that actually means in HPC. And I'm going to give them opportunities to uh, what I would call um, prepare for life and, and to ensure that their digital world at home is also reflected in what they are exposed to and can do in a classroom. Could you give us an example of life preparation? Okay, so say, for example, in a recent project, and this is a a STEM, I've just completed two years of research in in eight Southwest Sydney public primary schools, and the students have integrated, the teachers have integrated, this was a project that was really designed to build teacher capacity and confidence in teaching the STEM disciplines. And in some of those schools, they actually drew in the arts and the humanities as part of STEM or STEAM, if you like, as well. And one of the um, classrooms, the teacher was focusing on three of the HPC conceptions There was a big focus on engineering as part of the learning in a unit of work that they they were doing. And as part of that work, they were prototyping and building um, small watering machines, you know, sort of for agriculture. And so the students built a prototype and they were thinking about, they'd actually watched the farm bot video that is possibly familiar to you both. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's um, really revolutionising the way in which agricultural production will take place, um, getting rid of pests, um, making sure land areas are maximised and so on. And so that kind of acted as, as a bit of a hook for them. And then they sent, set about building a prototype that would Put a, push a hole in the ground, drop a seed in and water it and move to the next 
hole in the ground. So that what I'm calling is operationalizing the real world. So these students were well aware that, you know, food production is an issue, feeding the world's world's population is an issue. So um, how could I develop and rehearse the skills that an engineer might wanting might be wanting to think about by building a prototype like the one I've just described? So the idea there is that knowledge uh, gained in the classroom uh, does not really belong in the classroom in the long term. Uh, it's supposed to be applied out in the real world, as uh, with for your example, students learn something in the exactly. classroom but actually the students are working on real world problems mm. so i think there's a lot of a lot of time i don't know peter that we have any time anymore to work on what i would call hokey little projects i mean the there are significant problems in the world and i think that young people and young people i include primary school students in this are really able to start thinking like scientists or engineers or working on, you know, resolving a transport issue in their local area, looking at their playground and thinking about issues of sustainability and things like that. And I went to, in 2015, I was a visiting professor in Virginia and I had the opportunity to visit a number of schools, but then I also was able to go to a number of STEM schools and that was really interesting because obviously um, these were middle schools, they're designated to focus on the STEM areas, but the students in those schools are working on real problems and they're real problems that align to the syllabus or to absolutely they're not just dreamed up out of nowhere, they actually are, are come from the common core Mm-hmm. And they um, they work, for example, in in a in the STEM school I went to in Savannah, Georgia. They were working with the metro, the local metro, because there was a problem with the metro system in in Savannah. And so, the students in that middle school were working with the engineers, with the local government, to um, look at um, the transport needs and what possibly they might be able to offer and start to plan and create solutions for that. And they then have to present those solutions to an audience of the local council and so on. And these these give students, you know, actually their work becomes real and they have a real audience. Um, and there are, there are teachers in New South Wales schools that are doing exactly what I'm talking about, but it's not happening enough and I also don't know that I think a lot of the, and this gets to the point now around, you know, STEM, you know, what do we actually mean by that? And what I see is that not so much in the research projects that I've conducted because teachers can't get away from integrating their units. They have to have a science component. They've got to be thinking about technology. That's where HPC can support. They have to be thinking about engineering or making or design thinking, and they've got to be thinking about the mathematical part. And I think possibly it's it's more easily done in K through six or from P through six, say, in the primary school years. But STEM becomes more problematic in high schools because they're still very siloed um, and people say that they're doing STEM but they might just be doing science or they might just be doing maths 
or, you know, there are some um, high schools that have a STEM unit that years, students in years seven and eight can do. But again, it's not the faculties in high schools are still operating as silos. Yeah. And that's our biggest cha challenge to bring the silos together in an interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary way, because I don't know that unless we do that, that it's going to change and shift things, um, certainly that bureaucrats want and, you know, politicians, policymakers. And, I mean, even the, the last couple of reports that have been released, um, you know, in, in this last week, the Australia 2030 report, Prosperity Through Innovation, I mean, they're still talking about STEM um, and raising, you know, the science outcomes and raising the maths outcomes. And I get that because we still have, you know, end game assessments like the VCE, yeah. like the HSC, and they, you know, they don't necessarily help teachers, you know, if they've still got to get an ATAR score. Um, I don't know. And, and teachers, you know, always have their students' interests first and if they've got to play that HSC game, play the ATAR game, then they'll do it. So if I understand right, reform and, and uh, basically changing pedagogy in earlier years is easier because there's no pressure as there is in later years in high school, especially because of how it's connected to university and students' careers and the industry eventually. And because of those interconnections, things are harder to change later on in life. Exactly. No, we're certainly seeing that with the year seven and eight doing amazing yeah. things and then they get a little bit more conventional as they go down and, the track. And then they have to study for exams and mm. that's basically that's it. Yeah. Then you have to just study science, just study math, just uh, singular. There's no more STEM at that point. Exactly. And I mean, I think there, as you say, there's a lot more flexibility in year seven and eight, but there are schools like Marist um, at Parramatta that are you, where students do PBL right the way through now. So I'm very excited. They've had two cohorts through now who've only been exposed to working on seven or eight projects in a year. Um, the teachers and the principal there have done a wonderful job leading that kind of learning. I think that project-based learning, that's um, something that fits very easily with the high possibility classrooms framework. Those extended um, inquiry-based units that those teachers um, have been developing in in the schools that I've been working with are very powerful and they create those interconnections. But um, as you say, that's then, um, you know, students leave primary school, they're fired up, I think, more so now when they have those kind of opportunities to go into high school. But unless that's nurtured and fostered in the high school context, um, that will be lost. And I'm not sure. Um, I mean, they talk about it's the quality of the teachers. Yes, it is. It's always about the quality of the teachers and the teaching, and that's absolutely critical that makes a difference. But we also have to look at a, a school system, especially in high schools, that is quite stuck in a 19th century framework. Hmm. And yep. I'm on the public record for calling an end to the HSC and ATAR, and I've had, you know, in a keynote address, a whole, you know, rows of teachers and principals stand up and applaud. <laughs> well, let, let's explore this aspect, <clears throat> I think. Uh, we, we've heard this from previous guests in the past of how 
it will not just schools destroys education, but also exams tend to destroy education in its real sense. But you work in a university, so you know the environment there as well. And uh, each year you have fresh students to work with. And most of them uh, these days still come from exams, whether they are international students and still need to go through some examination to come in or domestic. There are some changes coming in in terms of gaining entry through projects like Newcastle University is doing a lot of work there. What is your experience and opinion and take in such changes and how far can we push those changes in the next, say, three to five years? Is a tide turning towards project-based entry? Well, I, th- I think that people like Shirley Alexander are doing a fantastic job in, in establishing a you know, transdisciplinary faculty, for example. Who is Shirley Alexander? So, so Professor Shirley Alexander, so she's a DVC um, in teaching and learning at uh, UTS, and she's been at UTS a very long time, but she has always been on the front foot in talking about the need for a different kind of education system. And I actually put it to her at a, at a forum that I was at. Um, I'd only actually been at UTS for a couple of months, but uh, the um, Ted Dintersmith, uh, and his uh, Tony Wagner, his colleague that wrote that book, Most Likely to Succeed, which is really based around high tech high, yep. had just delivered, um, I think it was PricewaterhouseCoopers, had a Seymour Centre interview with him. And I'd just come from that and I was going on to another forum at UTS. And um, Professor Tony Wagner said, well, it's really up to the universities to to lead the way on this. Mm. And if they, I mean, ATAR is a cheap sorting system yeah. and it determines, you know, who goes and who doesn't, but not, but in recent times, you know, even if you, you don't go, you can go because there's a different ways of getting into um, a university and just because there's a roadblock there because you don't have the marks, it doesn't mean you can't start something else and then transfer across. So, but the May, when I actually asked Shirley that, her response was, well, it's going to cost a lot of money for the universities to assess those projects, to assess those portfolios of work. But hmm. I'm sure there are ways around that with, you know, the use of artificial intelligence and, and all of that, because a lot of teachers' work is taken up with marking and assessment. And I think there are so much more, there are many more efficient efficiencies that, and I think AI, that's an area that I'm interested in moving into next. And in terms of, you know, where are the voices of teachers in um, in AI in school education? But specifically, I think in universities, and I, and I can't really talk outside my, my own experience, Peter, here, but I note for example, that at UTS, um, the engineers come in to my room and I only have a small teaching role because I'm in a research position at UTS. I have a 60% research load. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I note the engineers that come into the room that I leave with my humanities students from education are all young men. And yeah. so, um, and that's so, I mean, look, I think there is, um, there are more young women going into subjects like engineering, for example, but I still think it's, it's not where it should be. And 
I must say that uh, Michelle Simons, who talked about the feminization of, she talked about that in her Australia Day address, but and talking about the syllabus being feminized, but I'm not exactly sure, and as if feminization was a bad thing, um, I, you know, not everyone is a high performer and does everyone need to have the highest performance standards to be a good scientist, to be working in fields which involve mathematics or quantum physics? I mean, yes, at the top of your game, yes, but there are also a lot of people, the general populace needs a kind of STEM literacy, if you like. Oh, I see. Absolutely. Yeah. So that society can function well, that we can address and be mindful of using more, you know, less energy, thinking about whether or not we take our car or don't take our car, thinking about maybe growing um, a small amount of food for ourselves on our balconies in our apartments and so on. So I think that, you know, that making these subjects more broadly based and if they can be um, based around grand challenges in engineering or grand challenges in STEM, real world problems. And there are, there, there's a big organisation in the US that does exactly this and teachers and, and students in schools can respond to those grand challenges. And, you know, yes, there is still the direct instruction on that particular concept in science. Yes, there's that particular understanding that you need to have around mathematics. I mean, it doesn't mean because you're doing integrated STEM that the, the discipline knowledge is lost. The two things can work alongside each other. And that's why we need really good young people coming into teaching. The ATARs have dropped too low. There are too many young people who um, have come into teaching. They will never get jobs hmm. in schools per se. Yes, they might go into other areas, but I think we, as t in teacher education, we have dropped our game um, and, and UTS is really one of the few universities that has not, um, has kept its ATARs high and has really ensured that the classes are small and it's not about pumping through thousands of students every year in teacher education and uh, we need the best and the brightest um, to, to inspire those you know, young people that you have sitting in front of you that will be the future doctors, that will be the future Michelle Simons, do you know what I mean, of, of, of in this world? Yeah. It's very interesting that you bring this up now. Like, we've had about 30 episodes in this podcast so far, spoken to a lot of people and uh, that, that are in this industry, if I can call it industry, like in education, and all of them explaining and believe that that job of a teacher not only is hard today but it is getting harder every day as we go forward in the future because it's becoming more complicated the demands on teachers are only increasing they're not decreasing just look at how technology is going when talk about pedagogy as well that special needs kids uh, the whole infrastructure around education is not what it was three years ago so the demands on teachers increase and and i can see what you're saying in terms of getting the best of the best to become teachers as they will be responsible in a large extent to influence the next generation of Einsteins and uh, you know, engineers that will take us to Mars. And, and I think beyond now, I think we go into the asteroid build. I'm just talking about 
Elon Musk, <laughs> so cabbages. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah, I think you're I was absolutely just right. Say it, it was. It'd be interesting to talk to him about whether or not it was a great teacher at school that inspired him, because my mm. experience through all the different places, and I, you know, I guess I haven't trod that traditional academic pathway. Yes, I've always been interested in education, but I have worked in a number of different sectors within education, both, you know, theory and practice, if you like. But, you know, when you talk to a lot of those uh, people that come to the fore from time to time in their various um, disciplines or work, inspirational work, that it has often been their teacher at school that inspired them. So, of But we've got to pay teachers more. I mean, it's, it's still seen as a, a job a feminized profession and especially in primary schools and we have to pay teachers more it's I mean their jobs you alluded to the complexity I mean dealing with parents you know, yes of course right how hard is that but also the amount of paperwork that's now required in terms of the professional teaching standards I mean these are all tasks that take teachers away from the central job which is focused on teaching and learning and so you know in a way I if I had my way um, I would certainly have you know teaching assistants for I mean university professors in the US have a teaching assistant well we need to have teaching assistants for teachers because Mm. that they can take care of those other jobs so that the teachers can really concentrate on their planning and thinking about the syllabus um, and the subject matter knowledge and thinking about that in, you know, in putting that in a context that's going to be engaging and motivating for young people. So, in, you know, yeah. tapping into those fabulous digital resources and people in the community, you know, bringing those people into the classroom and so on. And, and continually train, isn't the, like, at, the and, and always train. learning and, and, and having time to um, think together with your colleagues and not having to teach every single period across the school day, having enough release from face-to-face. Yeah, exactly, a sabbatical indeed. I mean, there used to be such things, but not anymore. What workload would you offload to teaching assistants? Oh, gosh, I I wouldn't like to put a a figure around that, but I just think that, you know, faculties, if they could be every faculty, say, in a high school had a teaching assistant that supported those eight to ten teachers. I mean, I've been a head teacher in English and, you know, English teachers' marking loads are huge, absolutely huge. Um, I always said in my next life if I'd come back, in, you know, in, in a, as a teacher in education, I'd be a maths teacher because it's only right or wrong. <laughs> yeah, you just look at the last number. No, all my, math, all my maths colleagues will, you know, be jumping up and down about that. You know, that's right. But it's nothing like the workload that an English teacher has, I can tell you, especially if you're teaching year 11 and 12 and yeah. extension subjects, yeah. Do you see any chance of your hope, you know, that secret, <laughs> secret hope uh, ever happening, uh, even in a rich country? To be fair, I see it a lot with uh, science departments. They have a lot of assistants. They do, the lab say, assistant, yeah. I mean, yeah. every, I mean, English teachers need an equivalent lab assistant. Mm, yeah. I mean, everyone, you know, I mean, you know, what is that, a 10%, 20%? I'm, I mean, just to do the administration now, for example, with the NESA accreditation, you know, that teachers have to keep their portfolios up to date. Well, Mm -hmm. that's a huge amount of work. I mean, principals need to have a lot of that work released and relieved from them instead of all of 
you know, the constant responding to um, bureaucratic requirements and so on. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's such a, you know, as principals, they were focused on teaching and learning. That's why they went into it. But then all of a sudden, they're really heads of multi-million dollar organisations. I mean, that's what a school is, essentially. Sure. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, in the US, in that um, one of the schools I went to just outside William um, Williamsburg, which is a public high school, so it's a senior school, um, so just years at, uh, ni- um, sorry, 9, 10, 11, 12, essentially, so those senior years, and in meeting this wonderful school principal, she brought out all of the support staff. And for example, in this senior high school, they had three psychologists. They had a person for the they teachers, had a pers- for the full time. No, no, for the students, <laughs> for the for the students. But they had a full time nurse. They had a bursar. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was a whole raft of people that formed a large photographic group, you know, Mm. that um, when I just sort of thought, wow, you know, this is the support team in a school, you know, two psychologists, a substance abuse specialist in, you know, I mean, these are... Was that all the controls at the local level by the principal or government? Well, in the US it is very much, I mean, it's a state-by-state situation, but, and then the schools put their resources into that. But, you know, this was a public high school. It wasn't um, a wealthy school by any means. Sounds like a private school. Yeah, it does. Mm. Because I think about a school that I've been at and they had uh, two, well, not psychologists, but counsellors, all the groundskeepers of various... Are you feeling okay today? (laughs) Are you feeling... Mm. (laughs) Yeah, oh, right. <laughs> yeah, sorry, the brain's not quite there yet. And so it sounds like public schools. Yeah. I was just going to say that, you know, people's lives are so complex these days and, you know, parents are struggling, especially in the cyber space in high schools, you know, amongst adolescent, you know, there's so many debates around screen time and the mobile phone that was resurrected by Simon Birmingham the other day. I mean, you know it's not about banning things. It's about trying to support people who are trying to make their way in the world and leading a good life. And I I listened to probably the most profound keynote that I've ever been at was Ruha Benjamin. And she's a professor from Princeton University. And I listened to her in, in Denver, not last year, it was the year before now in 2016, And, you know, she talked about the, she works at the intersection of anthropology, the humanities and the sciences. And she was talking about, you know, yes, we can make a heart beat in a Petri dish, but can we, you know, have people emotionally connecting and connecting in healthy ways, you know? And so she, you know, she, uh, she got about three standing ovations during her keynote. It was so, I mean, it's available online somewhere, but she, um, yeah, she, she just uh, talked about, you know, this idea of the space we're in at the moment about civil society, the public good and leading a good life. And, and, and that's what we need to be focused on. And schools have central roles in that, but they can't do it all. And they've got to have money from government They've got to be valued by government and they have to um, have their um, lead workforce valued by government. And, and recognition and that starts, for that. Absolutely. Yeah. 
And it doesn't mean, you know, it doesn't mean that you've all, everyone has to have a PhD. I'm not talking about that at all, but it's got, there's the resourcing for that has to be really thoughtful and really address some of the sorts of things Mm. that we've talked about this afternoon. How should public schools get money from the government? It sounds like forever we've always said, oh, we need more money. Well, we have said Mm. that. And then, okay, nothing happens. Show us the money. Well, Gonski, and there's going to be arguments again about that and the figures uh, I heard the other day, um, Prime Minister Turnbull was talking about that and I read somewhere that it wasn't going to be as much as they were expecting and so on. And I mean, I work across both sectors and the differences are stark, you know, in terms of the amount of resources and in STEM, STEM you know, if you're going to have kids making the kind of prototypes that I was talking about, yes, they can make them out of paddle pop sticks and so on. And yes, they can use recycled materials. But if you're going to have, say, kids looking at um, water salinity levels along the Cooks River, for example, then they need to have a few digital thermometers in a school that they can um, take the temperature or take you know, have their own salinity kits, proper ones, not little test tubes, proper ones that mm. Sydney Water might use. And so, um, you know, that costs money. And um, what I see, and I I did a um, a five-minute TED-style talk at the end of last year uh, at UTS, and I talked about, you know, the inequities that I'm seeing in STEM, and I addressed five areas in that short, in that five-minute talk. And resources is a a critical part of that. I mean, where do you store these large projects like... Mm you know, a prototype that's built. If you have a tiny classroom that's filled with 30 students where there's no storage space, you know, where are you, if you're going to be building and making circuits, for example, where can you put all those things that you've purchased from JCAR that teachers can use with the students? Do you know what I mean? It's, you know, you, you need to have those resources on hand and I see, you know, scum, some schools have a lot of that and other schools have virtually nothing. And that's not right mm-hmm. in 2018. So these are issues that we don't normally talk about. So we talk about technology and how you can mm-hmm. use a class, but then there's all, all these auxiliary issues that, and they may, they may not be obvious in the beginning, but they would definitely be obvious uh, halfway through the semester. Buying from JCAR for one. Yes, rip off. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, that's right. You know, that's sorry. That's just a that's no, just an example. But you know what I mean. <laughs> they may be auxiliary issues, Peter. I guess. But I mean, important uh, to discount it. But they're absolutely central yeah. to you know if we're really going to build the kind of capacity in young people. Um, teachers have to. You know, they're so time challenged and there's always the next thing they've got to be addressing and we've got to make it easier for them. It comes down to planning that you were you spent quite a bit of time talking about, isn't it? Because uh, very often you plan about how to run a class when the class has got physical deliverables, like students building something, that then you also need to consider what happens with that particular outcome. Mm. Like, do you store it? Perhaps it can be part of... Uh, public learning yeah, and you can absolutely. do an exhibition perhaps or store it somewhere but you've got to consider what will happen to that item mm, indeed i mean and that's what lots of the schools that i've been uh, my, uh, my research has been 
um, conducted in all have these fantastic sort of like a sharing day at the end of, mm. or it might be a big exhibition or they might bring in uh, an astrophysicist from a local university. I've had the fantastic Chris Ferry coming in to, mm. um, he's a quantum physicist at UTS and he's quite new to Sydney and he um, came along and worked with some of my teachers and, you know, they can attend things like, you know, Parramatta um, does Vivid, for example. Yes. Um, and they can actually offer real feedback. And when it comes from a person who is, you know, a quantum physicist, then it, it has so much more credibility, if you like, um, for the students. Um, Does he understand what quantum physics is? I'm just kidding. We had a discussion about this <laughs> a couple of days ago. Well, Mark Zuckerberg, children read his book, so his, um, you know, quantum physics for babies. So. Yeah, great. I got to get that. Uh, Jenna, I wanted to bring this full circle and start uh, winding down our discussion. And after talking to you for about an hour, I want to ask what is your opinion in, in, in terms of whether STEM is really about STEM or about something else. And by that, I mean, is STEM really about science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and even art, if you want, or is it about something else? Well, or is it just great teaching? Yeah. What do you think? <laughs> well, um, I'd like to think that uh, I do think that we have to uh, foster a STEM literacy mm. or STEAM literacy. There's a real place for the arts and the humanities. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that um, we've just started a um, Centre for STEM Education Futures at UTS. So um, I have to say that, it, you know, it is, it's an important focus. But uh, Professor John Fischetti from Newcastle University um, said last year, you know, maybe all teaching and learning at school needs to be STEAM. And, you know, that, that's a provocative position, but I don't necessarily disagree with it. So... Um, I just see that there are so many ways we can work, get students to work on, you know, STEM projects that are responding to particular problems that we're trying to yeah. find yeah. or solve, for example. Um, and uh, uh, the way of accessing that can be done through integration of those, of those disciplines. Absolutely. But that integration is a challenge for teachers, mm. but it's not impossible and it's something that I've had the privilege of doing um, and working with the 37 teachers in those um, those eight schools that I've worked with over the last couple of years. And at the moment, I'm working on developing high possibility classrooms coaches for STEM in uh, six schools in um, in the eastern in the inner western eastern suburbs um, public schools that I'm working with, and um, that's to try and distribute the understanding around HPC and the understanding around STEM and STEAM um, across the school so that a mentor, if you like, or a coach works with a coachee and then you build capacity in more people within the school. So, and that's a project that I commenced in at the end of last year and it's in full swing as we mm. speak. So, Wow. That's, that's great. Uh, I should also mention that Professor Fischetti was uh, our guest uh, about... 15 episodes ago. Oh, well, So, yeah, yeah, so we, we did hear about that. <laughs> yeah, so it, it's a, look, it's, I don't think there's a straight answer on yeah. that. Um, and I, I just think that sometimes acronyms are a bit tricky. And, you know, there's also a whole lot of critical theorists in education that would argue, for example, that, you know, 
are there going to be all the STEM jobs at the end of this focus as well? So, uh, as far as I know, there are no STEM jobs. No, well, well, that's right. And startups only use one or two people. STEM teachers. STEM teachers, yeah. Well, is this such a title for STEM? Like when you finish your teaching degree, say at UTS, is there there a a stream that you can get out of it and be a STEM teacher? No, because the, the way that it works at the moment is, I mean, there's going to be a more focus, say, in our undergraduate and postgraduate programs um, starting this year and into next year around particular strands, but they're still doing science and they're still doing the KLAs, for example, the six Mm. KLAs that we have, because that's what the Board of Studies or NESA, um, should I say, requires. So so there is no um, high school course uh, in teacher education for you know, to become a STEM teacher. So you major in science. But I, I think, you know, we need to be really thinking, rethinking that. And that goes to, you know, a number of the things that we've talked about over the last hour. So, yeah. um, you know, that there aren't um, those programs in teacher education at the moment, to my knowledge, in Australia. Yeah, that's, that's what I thought. Well, Jane, uh, apart from your book, Technology, Integration and High Possibility Classrooms, would you recommend any other readings to people that are listening, just to get deeper into the things we discussed? Well, I think that, I mean, there's a lot of work that's been done around project-based learning. There's a new literature review, which I'm happy to pass on to you, that just came out the other day. Um, There's a whole lot of work around... um, Uh, things like uh, most likely to succeed, ensuring that people can go. uh, I have a number of different chapters um, uh, on my academia site that are available Mm -hmm. there for free. Um, And I also like to write for what they call the grey literature or industry literature uh, because I like to make my work uh, take such a long time before you write, you do the research, do a scholarly paper, in education, it's very slow from time of submission to when you finally get mm. that peer reviewed. And in my in the space of um, you know in the professional learning and, and technology enhanced learning space that I research in, you know it's old news by yeah. the time it comes out. So um, I can certainly um, give you some links, and certainly people can go use the High Possibility Classrooms website. There's a number of blog posts there. Um, I need to get on and do more of that. But I also think that people need to be thinking about AI in education Hmm. and how that's going to look. Because the UK, for example, is much further ahead. They've got committees in Parliament, you know, the House of Lords, for example, uh, because this is a juggernaut that's racing towards schools and the tech companies are going ahead and developing a whole range of technologies, but there's very little voice of teachers and educators in there. Hmm. And so this is this is something which is fantastic because both of you are sort of, I guess, you know, it's it's the techie, the techie meets the educator in in what you're doing with these demiverse podcasts. And that's, um, you know, uh, that's fabulous, because it's bringing those two worlds together because I think often they both view each other as Luddites. I mean, I think things have shifted slightly, but certainly I know when in the digital education revolution, okay, um, 
it, that was a great disruptor when every child um, in Australia um, in year 9, 10, 11, 12 had a simple device. But the genius of that program was that it brought the technology world and the education world together. And I've been in those conversations and it's very interesting. <laughs> and what the techies want to develop will never, would never, could never work in the classroom. But it's fun for us at least. It's, <laughs> it's, fun. it's fun for you. That's exactly right. But in terms of practical yeah. usefulness to teaching and learning, yeah. I don't think so. Absolutely. <laughs> what would you imagine that teachers would like to say about AI? Ah, well, that that's a really good question. Um, I guess we need to start that conversation. And people like Genevieve Bell in her Boyer lectures, Fast, Smart and Connected, was very much on the front, front foot in talking about um, the need to really have a look at how that's going to play out in uh, in classrooms. And it's not about a robot taking over the role of a teacher, absolutely not, but there's a real place for teachers having an assistant and that assistant um, in a classroom could in, be enormously useful, but there's huge you know, issues around um, privacy, data collection, who gets access, the moral questions. I don't necessarily think that, you know, in what do we mean by intelligence in, in all of this debate around AI? You know, what is what yeah. is human intelligence? We can't have these, it can't dumb us down. We It's got to be a, about making us smarter. Mm-hmm. And uh, But there's a lot of efficiencies that can be gained through AI that I don't think oh, those conversations haven't really even started except for um, people like Mark Scott, who held his Future Frontier Symposium towards the end of last year. So the Department of Education in New South Wales is is interested in that space and put out some terrific papers at the end of last year around that. So um, look forward to more of that. When it comes to artificial intelligence, what I'm looking forward to really is when I can download a program <laughs> and learn Kung Fu in about 10 seconds. I'm just making a reference to Matrix now. I know it's science fiction, but <laughs> I think it's a matter of time. And then I don't know, what, what happens to teachers when you can download you know, whatever you want to learn? Well, that's right. Um, but that's where, that, that's where the non-cognitive skills come into play. <laughs> yes. You know, that's, you know, yes, Isn't it that will be possible. It, absolutely. Mm. But there, I mean, there are, there's a lot of documentation, you know, large European reports and so on that are absolutely talking about those sorts of, you know, for example, if we think about there's one report which I just want to refer to, the World Economic Forum. I mean, they in their paper New Vision for Education, they talk about 16 such skills. So they are mm. things like emotional intelligence, open mm. educational data analysis, Critical thinking, empathy, teamwork. Do I download those? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm just kidding. I can see <laughs> your a, point. That's it's a absolutely. very techie boy answer. <laughs> absolutely. I think that's that's the difference between the ability to Google information or to read Wikipedia and really understand uh, a concept behind it, right? Um, I think that's where the difference between uh, a teacher that goes beyond transmitting data to the students and a teacher that helps students really learn comes into play. It does. I mean, it's that notion of metacognition, the learning Mm -hmm. how to learn how to learn. And I, you know, and I think, you know, in an era of, dare I say it, that 
fake news. Mm. Um, you know, really, um, students have to know how to find good information. And they, mm. they actually, in a couple of studies I've done in high schools, just preceding the ones in STEM, that was an issue. They don't, they don't know how to find good information. They do a search, they go to the top two responses, and they don't necessarily go down to the government websites. And, but let's face it, there's a lot of material now that sits behind firewalls, which is very hard to for the ordinary person to access. So, But being good information finders and being able to critique that is very important. Hmm. So maybe we should just be teaching that and that alone. <laughs> because the the what happens usually is if you don't know how to figure out what high quality versus uh, bad is, you download and you learn kung fu that doesn't work. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Marcus, you got, you got a, Marcus has been trying to ask a question now for a while. No. How, how should new educators yes. get prepared for teaching STEM? Oh, well, they, they need to, um, we need to have um, good people going into, into teaching and to, into teacher education. We need to ensure those um, entry levels much higher than they currently are. And we need to ensure that they take on, they, they, you know, think about their role as a learner, but also seek out and, and realise that to be um, a teacher these days, it is about a vocation. It's not, a, as I say to my students sometimes, I'm not in the business of um, you learning to become vacation teachers just there for the holidays. It's about thinking that this is a vocation and how can I learn my subject matter in those disciplines of science, technology, engineering and mathematics and think about interesting ways of bringing that together in an inquiry sequence, for example. So, um, you know, being given the opportunity to work with industry, being given the opportunity to work in a faculty outside of teacher education. And I think there's real scope for teacher education faculties to work a lot more with industry and to provide, you know, for example, um, engineer placements in schools. I mean, there are those sorts of things that exist and they certainly did in the early 2000s. The money ran out for those sorts of things, but I'm pleased to see that it's um, something that's being talked about again at the moment. But in terms of early career teachers, really thinking about um, embracing um, the opportunity to work with people outside your own discipline area. But that's, you know, this is a wish list, Marcus, that, um, you know, means that, you know, the reality is that a lot of our students, in universities these days, they have to work full-time to finance and pay their hex. If you're living in Sydney or even in living in a more remote area, it costs money and, and just... So often you're just flat out trying to meet the requirements of your course, but really once you get into a school and with a supportive staff really trying to think about the ways that you can hang on to what you were taught in teacher education and think about those innovative practices that you learned about and try to build on those, seek out a really good mentor, make sure you connect with parents. And if there's, you know, a mother, for example, at a school I was working in Victoria, they, uh, a couple of the mothers were oil engineers, we'll bring them into the classroom to 
talk about their work to, you know, the students in your class. So Is it olive oil? No, big oil. <laughs> so big just, oil. <laughs> that's what comes to my mind. <laughs> Being Greek and all that, right? No. <laughs> Can't help it, sorry. Popeye now. <laughs> Um, I was also going to say, Jane, that they should just come and enroll to the teacher's course at UTS. Yes, exactly. And don't I mean, worry about it. Um, <laughs> I'll take care of they it. Should, they should definitely come and, and think about doing teacher education yeah, at UTS. It's so, a great program. Uh, it's, um, there's a lot of excellent work being done in those courses and we have master's programs and PhD programs. So, And you are looking, I think you are accepting um, so you supervise PhD or re research students? I do, yes. Yeah. yeah, I do. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, uh, I think it's really important that you keep learning as a teacher. If yeah. you, do, you do your, you know, requirements to become a teacher and get a job in a school, but that's only just the start, really. Exactly. Um, how, how can people get in touch with you? Um, well, so they can contact me through my, um, if they just... Google Jane Hunter UTS, mm -hmm. um, my um, details will come up on the UTS website. They can also follow me on Twitter, Jane Hunter 01, and also um, go into the High Possibility Classrooms um, website. And so um, if you just put that into your search engine, that will pop up as well. So, um, yes, always um, love to talk to educators and uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jane. Uh, we'll put all that in the show notes on our website and people get in touch with you, especially research students, I think, might be very interested to get in touch. So thank you again, uh, Dr. Hunter. It was a pleasure talking to you and all the best with your research and your work. Thank you very much. That's all for this episode. The notes for this episode that include links to many of the resources mentioned and information on how to get in touch with Jane are available on our website, texplore.com forward slash p forward slash stemiverse. Each episode comes with its own page on the Tech Explorations website and a goldmine of information in the notes. This Stemiverse podcast episode was produced by Tech Explorations. Do you have any questions or suggestions? Would you like to nominate a friend or colleague to be our guest? Please email us at pa at texplore.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for the name of our podcast, STEMiverse. That's S-T-E-M-I-V-E-R-S-E. -E -E. Thanks for listening and we'll see you again next time.